Hi, this is Pastor Wilson. Thank you so much for joining our podcast, Renew Church OC, where we pre- present different sermon series that I hope will enrich your life. The next six weeks, we'll be going through our series, Unstuck, where we go through six stages of spiritual development and how we can progress from one stage to another while appreciating each stage that we're in. I hope it helps you on your spiritual journey as you get a landscape of where God is taking you now and where He's taking you in the years to come. God bless. Hey, thanks so much, Kristen. Really appreciate you. I'll give you a quick roadmap to our service today. I'll be introducing our series and talking through this framework of spiritual stages and talking through all six stages of spiritual, um, kind of laying out the journey for you. And then we're going to stop at stage one, and then Roy's going to come up, and he's going to preach the second half of our time. So you get two 40-minute sermons today. No, I'm just kidding. We divided it up. Joseph got stood up and was like, what's going on? Um, So anyways, we're going to do that. And before that, as we do with every service, we're going to break off into our groups so if you could just find people around you to introduce yourself and talk to, our question of the day today is, uh, name something that you're quite good at now, but totally stuck at the beginning. Describe the process of how you got good at it, okay? So I would love for you guys just to make sure everyone's included, and especially if you don't know someone, just to introduce yourself. All right, welcome back, everyone. Really grateful for you. You guys uh, sharing, we'll go back into our groups at the end of our time together. Um, I wanted to just acknowledge our college ministry. They did an awesome Sisters Appreciation yesterday. Um, So the boys, they dressed up as villains from Disney and other universes like Captain Hook, Ursula, Dark Vader, Hades. They hung from Mulan. And then they had the clock and the candle from Beauty and Beast teaching them how to be gentlemen. And they, they apologized to the sisters for not treating them well. The love of Christ is transforming them. So the clock and the candle is helping them learn how to be gentlemen and care for the sisters well. So they're repentant. They're trying to turn a new leaf. Captain Hook's trying to be better. Um, so it was a really cute, I heard it was a super cute sister appreciation. And I think, I think about, like, something that I wasn't very good at but am better at now. It probably would be, like, treating my wife <laughs> like a lady. I think, when, I think when I first started dating, it was like a bro relationship, you know? I'd take her to all the bro stuff. One of my first dates with Nina was taking her to the gym so I could just show her how much I benched, you know? <laughs> She was like, I want someone taller, bigger, strong. I'm like, go, let's go to 24. At the time, I was throwing up two plates to warm up. I was like so ripped. And um, she didn't mean nothing to her. She's like, those look big, you know? And then I realized she doesn't want to bench press with me. There was another time, uh, my first girlfriend, I was really into boxing. And so uh, we went to her dorm, and I was talking to this guy. He's, he has a black belt. I was like, hey, you want to spar? So we broke out our gloves. And we started boxing. For guys, you think that would impress a lady? They don't care. They just feel ignored. And I got gut punched really hard. And I just laid on the floor. And she's like, I think I had to go to my door. <laughs> but, you know, I slowly grew. Uh, the clock and the candle talked to me about how to treat women. 
And now with Nina opening doors, you know, buying her, I should buy her flowers more, all the things, washing dishes, swiffing. So when we think about our spiritual life, it's a journey as well. And we start off as infants, and then we grow into spiritual adults. And so our next series is called Unstuck, the Six Stages of Spiritual Journey. The two people we're drawing most from is Mark, John Mark Homer and then the authors of The Critical Journey, um, which we'll get to later. So John Mark Homer asks, is there a map for this journey and landmarks to navigate by? That's what he's thinking about. And he's asking, like, when we look at the two centuries of the Christian church, are there, is there a roadmap for us to say that people who have gone through this journey before have come up with some similar spots on the road, some similar transitions from one stage of our spiritual maturity to the other. So stage theory is an attempt to map the spiritual journey. And it dates all the way to John Cassian, 360 AD. He says, there is no arrival unless there is a plan to go. And he's one of the monastic fathers. John Bunyan in 1678 talks about stage theory, but from the books, The Pilgrim's Progress, where Christian starts his faith and then progresses. And the actual title, the complete title of the book is The Pilgrim's Progress from This World to That Which is to Come. So a, a journey in which he's taking in his spiritual um, life. Lastly, Jan and Bruce in 1995 talk about the critical journey. That's the one that we'll be diving into over the next six weeks. So I'm going to give you an overview. We'll talk about the first stage, and then next week will be the second stage. So here are some goals of stage theory. I think the most modest goal is that you're just simply naming where you're at. It's just this, hey, this is where I'm at, and this is, the, this is how God invites me into his presence and into growth in my stage. No stage is better than the other. Uh, no stage makes you uh, loved by God more, right? So I have a baby, a three-month-old, Lila. I have a three-year-old. I have a six-year-old. Liam can't tell Levi, like, I'm just, I'm taller, therefore I'm better than you. They're just in different stages, and each stage has its beauty, has its complexity, has its obstacles, but you do want to continue growing and not get stuck in the stage. But at the same time, each stage is good and, um, and has its own beauty. So the second point is that we, are, we want to avoid dangers of each stage being stuck we want to meet the invitations of Jesus at each stage of our life. And lastly, we want to appreciate where other people are in their journey so that we're not judging people because they're just in a different space or we're not being envious because we think uh, someone is more spiritual than we are. We're going at our own rate. I think about the new Christians that have come through our church and hearing them pray for the first time watching them open up the word and read a passage I've read a thousand times, but they have this fresh lens, these eyes, and they're asking questions I haven't asked for a long time. There's a wonder to it. Everyone, there's something to appreciate in each stage um, for ourselves and for the people around us. A few disclaimers. It's a theory. So we're not exegeting one chunk of scripture to lay out each of these stages. Um, it's kind of like the Enneagram or like some other t personality tool where if the shoe fits, wear it, right? If you hate this theory, then I'll see you uh, at Easter. <laughs> um, 
But I hope there's something in here that you would enjoy. But it's not chapter and verse. It's not canon. George Lucas didn't write it. It's fan fiction, yeah? So uh, just kind of hold it with open hands. But as we go into each part of the stage, we want to bring you scripture and truth from God's word at the same time. Secondly, it's not linear. So it can sound like we're just cleanly going from one stage to, to the other. But it's often like more of an upward spiral where you can... Uh, progress, regress, get stuck. And also, some stages, in some ways, each stage can describe our life as a whole. Uh, we can identify with a certain stage, but there's categories or parts of our life that might be in a separate stage. Does that make sense? So most likely, you'll go through the stage here, you'll say, oh, I fit pretty well in the stage, but when I look at um, the sin, or when I look at serving, or when I look at how I forgive people, I'm actually in another stage. Lastly, the journey is slow. So we're looking at a lifetime's journey with the Lord in one little circle graph on the next slide. All right, so here are the different stages. And again, I'll do a quick overview. The first one is a recognition of God, which we'll talk about today. And in this stage, it's, it's this awakening or Maybe in our language, being woke, right? Anyone triggered? You're waking up to, I'm trying to like throw politically charged words at you every few weeks to desensitize you for Joe Biden and Trump in two years. Okay, I'm trying to desensitize our congregation. Okay, so we're being woke in the Lord. And all of a sudden, we see the reality of God that for the first time, he's real in our life. For the first time, we're not alone. For the first time, we're forgiven. And there's this beautiful, like, innocence and even naivety to looking at the Lord and being just in wonder and awe of him. And that's some of what defines the first stage. The second stage is a life of discipleship. So it's defined by learning and belonging. We're absorbing as much information as we can. We go to the people we trust the most. Uh, we, we love our popes, right? Tim Keller, John Piper, whatever pope you have in your life, you go to them and you're just getting as much as you can out of them. And it's represented best in community. There can be a sense of righteousness, a feeling of certainty, young restless reform movement, right? I know everything there is to know about theology because I'm reformed. Okay, stage three is the productive life. So this stage is defined by doing. We often want to work for God. We're aware of the unique ways we can contribute to a community. Maybe sometimes we're given leadership roles at church. And a lot of that stage is defined by serving God and doing in the community. Oftentimes that gets stuck or even placed as the pinnacle of the Christian faith. But then stage four is the journey inward. So it's a very deep and personal journey where it's unsettling. And we feel oftentimes confused. The things that we were certain before, we aren't certain of anymore. I think maybe a modern term is just deconstruction, right? We're, we're letting go of things. We're redefining things. We have a lot more questions and doubts. And we come to a crisis of faith, um, which is very different than stage two or three where we have certainty. And then the wall, sometimes it happens between stage three and four, in the middle of stage four, or, or, but to get to stage five, regardless of where the wall resides, you have to get through the wall. The wall represents our will meeting face-to-face -face with God's will. 
If you think about Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane, where he says, take this cup away from me, but not my will, but your will be done. It's kind of that last thing that you surrender to the Lord. It's the last part of you that you're saying, okay, I'm going to give this up as well. Um, and often the wall is met with when we hit a painful event in our life or something that defines us that we just can't rationalize the rest of our faith around. It, it doesn't make sense. I thought if I served and if I knew God, he would spare me from this or I wouldn't do this or this wouldn't be a part of my life. And we come to an impasse. That's the wall. Stage five is the journey outward. So in this stage, we're rediscovering God and accepting his love. We're fully surrendered to him. And there's this, again, awakening to God a second time, another rebirth from the depths of despair, confusion, um, tackling after tackling the hardest things about us. We come out in stage five, and there's a radical acceptance of who we are and our reality. In some ways, I'd say we stop hiding. We stop hiding from ourselves. We don't have to not think about any parts of our, our lives. We stop hiding from the Lord. We know that he fully knows us and fully loves us and fully accepts every piece of our life, every part of our story, every, every trauma we've been through. And in this stage, we're also transparent with the people around us. There's nothing to prove anymore. We, we don't need to hold a status at church or be perceived in a specific way. We can be fully authentic because we've accepted those parts of who we are and we know God's accepted that as well. In, in other words, we're living life with God. Every part of our life, we're holding hands with him and we walked into with him. Stage six, um, you know, John Mark Homer, other people would say very rarely does people come on stage six, uh, get to stage six. That's why I asked Dr. Ken and Chrissy to talk about it. So <laughs> I, I can defer. Um, but this is a life that's marked by the love of the Lord. And there's this sense of deep compassion for people. Um, obedience comes naturally. You're in a, a spirit-filled, quiet, unassuming space. You don't have to insert yourself anymore. You don't need a title. But at the same time, you're living for the others. There's, it's marked by selflessness. It's marked by, I don't need to be known. I don't need to be recognized. I don't need to be pedestaled. I don't need power. I don't need accolades. I'm fully for the people around me. I'm fully for another. In stage three, you're serving, but some of it's like selfish. Some of it's like wanting to be seen. Some of it's uh, um, brought on by a limit of this is as much as I'm willing to give. In stage six, you're serving, but it's not about you anymore. And it's marked by selflessness. So I think about Jesus on the cross. Literally, as he's giving his life and people are mocking him, he's saying, God, forgive them. In the middle of their mockery, he's saying, God, forgive them. In the middle of death, he's looking at someone else dying and saying, you'll be with me in paradise. That is the, the deepest marks of someone who's living in stage six. All right, when we talk about stage one, so I'm at the very tail end of my, my time, and I'll hand it off to Roy. <clears throat> Some of the th ways that we think about stage one, again, is this recognition of God and the awe and innocence as we see him, right? It's these moments of, of 
of that first awareness that God is real. When I saw the earth out of space, I knew instantly that there was a God and that I needed to serve him. Mom says, I'm so glad your infection went away. Did you snuggle with your Care Bear up close to your heart? And her four-year-old says, no, I had Jesus close to my heart. When I saw my infant son brought out of the delivery room, I knew beyond a shadow of doubt that there had to be someone much bigger than my wife and me at work in the world. That moment where you take a step back and you realize there's something beyond you, that there's a God who loves you, he's with you, and he's real. So some of these um, points we could make a, probably for a list forever, but an awe and first recognition that I am not alone, that I am loved, there's purpose beyond me and in me that I'm not defining or, um, or just adopting from my parents. I am forgiven. And in the recognition of God, <clears throat> we are also choosing him to be God in every part of our life. I think that there's that initial um, experience of being in awe of who he is. But then the second piece of that is saying, do I want to not only be in awe of him, but follow his ways? Do I, not, do I want to just be in awe of God being God, or do I want him to be God in every part of my life? And so in this first stage, we're also dealing with sin, the other things we had worshipped, the other things that we had clung onto, the other purposes driving our life. And we're asking, do we want to recognize God in these really intimate ways where it changes the trajectory of our life, what we're grabbing at, what we really want. And I think the hardest part to recognize God in is our addictions and our sin. But it's really when we find him there that we start to transform. Um, I'm excited to share the pulpit today with Roy Kim. He's a, a sexual addiction therapist. That's his specialty. But he had also been a pastor in a previous life. And they had to unlearn all his pastor's skills to be a good therapist, right? Pastors are terrible therapists. And um, we like talking. They have to listen. It's different. Um, and then they, he found, uh, we found each other at a pastor conference. He talked about, hey, I'm a sexual addiction expert. And I said, I need help in sexual addiction. And we're with like six other pastors. And then I had him come in and help lead us in workshops over 2020. So you're familiar with him. He's been a part of our church for six months. He also leads our divorce care uh, ministry. So Roy's going to come up and continue, finish off uh, our time together today, and then we'll close in prayer and communion. Uh, don't worry, my portion is not 40 minutes. It's more like 80 minutes. <laughs> So um, one of the things I like to start off with is an illustration, because I think um, if we're going to be really delving into a, uh, a lifestyle where we choose to address our sin and to make that be less and less of an issue in our lives, um, there's a certain mindset that I think we need to have that will help us uh, sustain that in a way that is uh, not 
uh, burdensome uh, to us, overly burdensome. And so I have here a tape measure. And I'm not sure whether you can see the red ribbon at the end, but if this red ribbon represents uh, my battle with recurring sin, and it's just maybe even plaguing me like a thorn in my side for years and years and years, and I feel like this sin has been um, keeping me from God loving me, keeping me from God accepting me, uh, keeping me from feeling like God approves of me. Um, this, uh, this sometimes makes me want to compare myself with, let's say, someone who's right here at the yellow ribbon, which is, you know, if this casing, this metal casing represents like God and his holiness, and this person right here, Mother Teresa, is so good, and so righteous, and obviously closer to God, and obviously because she is closer to God, God favors her more than God would favor me all the way at the, at the red, okay? So um, I'm making this comparison in my own head, and it keeps me from sometimes trying, because what's the point, right? I, I'll never get to a place where uh, I'll, I'll ever match Mother Teresa, maybe I might try for a while and I'll start improving and get close and then something just happens and I just stop. And then, oh, I'm back here again. God, God hates me, I suck, right? This is kind of like the, the typical uh, thought process that I have for myself and maybe some of you guys have the same thing. But in reality, uh, this is actually not the right ratio, okay? So if you would, wouldn't mind holding on to that hot tightly, thank you. Okay, so if God's holiness is actually right here, and my red is over there, Okay, obviously this is super discouraging. How in the world am I going to <laughs> claw my way all the way over here? But it gets worse. This is roughly 20-ish feet. Imagine this casing is in Taiwan. Okay? So I can try as much as I want to claw my way over there I won't make it, you know? And if I'm thinking, look how great Mother Teresa is. God must favor Mother Teresa way more than me. Think of it from God's perspective, all the way in Taiwan, <laughs> right? He's like, really? You know? Okay, Mother Teresa's great and all, but you think that her behaviors and her actions match up to my holiness? No, it doesn't. So I, forgive me God, I, God, am looking over there and saying your petty squabbles with one another and your comparisons of one another and you thinking that you're uh, so bad 
uh, that you can't you know, match my holiness is kind of a moot point. And that's why there's only one solution to all of this, and that is for God to be the one that brings himself back to us. Thanks. If you could set that down. Thanks so much. God is the one that has the plan to send Jesus, his son, down to us and extends the offer. If you will believe that my son is the one who has done everything possible, everything right, everything good, to relieve you of your sin, to absolve you of your sin, and you place that burden onto me, I will take care of it for you. Not in the sense that you will never sin again, because that's not possible, but rather that I will cancel your debt. And if you place your faith in me, that is how you will have favor in my eyes. Not because your works are good, not because you have finally become like Mother Teresa, but simply because I did that for you. That's the deal. And in Ephesians chapter 2, if you could show that Bible verse, please, Paul states this. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And it is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And that's why Paul says in other parts of his letters to the churches, I can only boast in Christ because it's not my works that have saved me. Right? So this framework is really important for all of us to think about because sometimes we feel like we are in despair because we'll never make it. And sometimes we feel self-righteous because I'm better than other people. But all of that is moot. Okay? So this begs the question, if God is just going to save us anyway, is it worth it to put in all that effort to battle our sin? That's an important question. And I think we do need to be clear about why we battle sin in the first place. So um, my wife goes to a gym that I used to go to. <laughs> I quit. I obviously don't prioritize my fitness. Um, but one of the former coaches at my wife's gym said that the main reason why um, he wanted to start exercising and to keep exercising is because of his dog. Um, he has a big dog, and the big dog weighs a lot. and. Uh, he said that if there ever was a house fire, he would want to be strong enough to carry his dog out to safety. You can show the next slide, please. Okay. Look at that motivation. That's a big dog on his shoulders on the right. I definitely couldn't do that. But, you know... This coach 
He wants to be strong enough to do that. But what happens if you, let's say you one day get strong enough to do it, and then you start not going to the gym anymore. And it's, you can't do the squats. You can't do, you know, heave the dog onto your shoulders. Well, okay, it's great that you got to a point where you're strong enough, but if you don't keep that up and stay strong, one day if there is a house fire, he won't be able to bring that dog to safety. So that's his motivation to keep going is because he wants to do that for his dog whom he loves very much. So what about you? You know, if you think about a particular sin in your life, like why? Why do you want that out of your life? Why do you want that to be less and less of an issue in your life? If it's not because, you know, you're trying to get good enough to God for, for God to love you, then it must be for some other reason. So as Wilson mentioned, uh, I'm a sex addiction therapist. And so one of the questions that I ask uh, my clients is, why? What is it about this particular uh, habit and behavior that you want uh, to get rid of so badly? And so the popular answer that they'll give me is that they're in crisis. Um, they're husband or their wife found out about this and their marriage is on the ropes. And if I don't get rid of this, then I uh, may not be married again. And so I'm doing this to save my marriage. Okay, so when they say that to me, at first I'm thinking that's a pretty good strong reason. But then I say to them, but it's not strong enough. And they say, why? I said, let's say that you work your butt off to try to get uh, you know, this, this addiction under control. And your spouse, who has been traumatized by your betrayal, just says, I'm done. Too many traumatic memories. Uh, I don't know whether I want to work hard enough to trust you again. And I just, I can't do this anymore. And so the spouse leaves. Even though the person has been working hard on their addiction recovery. It happens, actually frequently. And so I've seen a lot of my clients who are in that position where they say, I'm doing this to save the marriage, where now the marriage is gone. And so what happens? They go back to their sexual addiction. Because that was the sole reason why they wanted to uh, get rid of it in the first place. So that's why I tell them, that answer, that, that reason's not strong enough. Um, and so I push. I push my clients to think a bit deeper. Why? Why do you want to get sober? And sometimes it takes them weeks. Sometimes it takes them months to get to uh, a, a reason that they feel is uh, actually strong enough. And so some of the best ones, some of the best reasons that I've heard so far is, I want to stop objectifying people. That's got nothing to do with whether the marriage is saved or not, because that's not completely up to you. That's a two-way street. 
But if I'm saying I want to stop objectifying people, that's solely up to you. Or uh, I want to stop generational sin. My grandfather was, you know, they'd say uh, he, he was um, a, a womanizer and an uh, and adulterer. My father was a womanizer and adulterer. I am a womanizer and adulterer. I do not want my son to be a womanizer and adulterer. So I want to be the one that stops this generational sin. I said, that's a good reason. Or they might say, I don't want to participate in the sex trafficking world. Good reason. Or I want to see people the way that God sees people. Good reason. And so when they not just come up with a reason, but they are convicted by that reason, that is sustainable as long as they keep reminding themselves of that reason. And so that makes them work hard on their recovery. So I really encourage you all to really think why, if you can't identify what is that particular recurring sin that just keeps you, that makes you feel so stuck in life, why is that you want to do this? It can't be just about God's approval. Okay? It's got to be about something else that is uh, very substantial. And I invite you to consider your strategy. So the opening uh, small group question that, um, that we talked about was uh, asking you about something that you got really good at, right? Uh, and this points to the way that uh, I believe God designed the brain to work. When we were back in the Meridian, uh, and I was uh, with, uh, with Wilson about talking about sexual addiction. I talked a little bit about the brain, and you know, I, I ap apologized preemptively to all the medical people out there who, who know much more about the brain than I do. But in general, you know, the brain is designed to form habits, right? So uh, we get good by trying and then getting guidance, and then coaching, and then uh, improving on something, maybe making some mistakes along the way. You make some adjustments. You try again, and you do this. Once you find something that really works for you, and you get good at it, you do this dozens, hundreds, maybe thousands of times until it becomes automatic for you. Okay? Think about all the things that you do automatically every single day. Your, your, your morning routine, your evening routine, how you wash your face, how you make coffee, how you drive to work, all this stuff is because the brain has become habituated in some of these repetitive behaviors. Okay? So um, recurring sin is also something that has become somewhat of a habit for us. Okay? Um, but yet, this is in a destructive way. We've done it hundreds, we've done it maybe thousands of times, and it just becomes automatic. Think about reflexive actions, like when, when your kid does something and you just snap, okay? It's, it's not as if like you're thinking about it, it's just instant, okay? And this might be something that has become habit for you. So what's the strategy against recurring sin? I used to think that it was about just prayer. God, take this away from me. God, make me holy. God, make me, make me more like Jesus. I think these are good prayers, but I also think they're way too vague. Because I think what I'm indirectly saying is, God, make me holy. 
I'm waiting, right? Make it happen, God, right? That's kind of my, my mentality as I'm praying those prayers every single time and nothing's happening. For those of you who listen to radio sometimes and there's this Christian psychologist, Henry Cloud, it's a really good quote. He says, you can't pray yourself out of something that you behaved your way into. Okay? And he's coming from a brain science. He's talking about how habits form. And so if, we're just, if we've done thousands of repetitions in doing one thing, and we're saying, God, take it away, it's not really fair. You know? it's, it's kind of a cop-out. So. Another example of this is uh, my friend Chris. He was telling me about this one guy who came up to him saying, Chris, you know, I, I prayed to God to take away my sexual addiction, and God answered. No more, no more temptation. I don't think about it anymore. Hallelujah. And Chris said to him, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and the guy's like, what are you talking about? Why, why aren't you happy for me? And Chris said to him, you know, in paraphrase, because you were deprived of the long intentional steps that are necessary to form godly character. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> we get good at something by trying. We get guidance. We improve. We make mistakes. We adjust those mistakes. We learn more. We try again dozens, hundreds, thousands of times. And, you know, in my line of work, not only is this grueling for my clients, it's frightening, terrifying. Because this road requires things of them that they've probably avoided their whole life. The road for sexual addiction recovery requires brutal honesty. Brutal honesty with yourself, brutal honesty with other people, and most people don't want to do that. Why? They don't want to get canceled. They don't want people to reject them. They don't want people to feel like they are some monster. So they just won't be honest. And I get it. I don't want people to think badly about me either. But that's the pathway. That's the pathway to actual healing and long, long sustained recovery is brutal honesty with yourself and with other people. Even despite the fact that people out there may think of you in a particular way that you don't want. Scary. You mean I have to put a filter on my phone and on my computer? That'll slow everything down. I know. But you might need it because you're that compulsive. You mean I might need to go without my smartphone? How will I use Yelp, right? What about GPS? You might need the TomTom -tom again, right? <laughs> you might need the Thomas Guide, right? But hey, if, if you really cannot do without your, uh, if you cannot, use your smartphone in a way that, that does away with objectifying people, you really might need a dumb phone. You might really need to check yourself into a 
residential facility for 90, 200 days and spend 60 grand because it is that much of a problem for you. And you're like, oh crap, okay, maybe I will get rid of my smartphone, right? Big time choices that are super scary. You might, you're saying that I might need to attend 12-step meetings for years? Maybe. But I've got softball and soccer and volleyball and all these other things. I know. But if it requires it, maybe you do need to give those things up until you can get well. Scary stuff. Your whole life is disrupted because of this thing. But again, I go back to why. Why do you want to do it? If you come up with a really convicting reason why you want to do it, that reason might be more powerful than your desire to use Yelp. You know? So what will it take to battle your addictions, your anger? What will it take to battle your coveting, battle your self-image, battle your obsession with work? What might it take? Um, but the great thing that I want to end with here is that even though these steps might be super, super scary for you, very, very um, uh, sacrificing, there's, um, there's someone. There's someone who wants to partner with you. Um, and that's the Lord himself. Uh, Let's read this very familiar psalm, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And for our purposes today, I want us to focus on two images. Can you show the next slide, please? Check out this little kid, and imagine that there's no big person next to him on the right. It's just the little kid. And the kid's kind of lost and trying to make it home. And he's still got about five more blocks to go. Okay? Think how terrified this kid must be. And that's kind of like us. When we try to think about the steps, the scary steps that are necessary to actually address our recurring sin. And what... David is imagining here is the Lord walking with him in those really scary, dark places. And I'd like for you to think about God being with you in those scary places. You know, if you want to make amends with people, if you want to uh, be really honest with yourself and with others. It's really scary. But can you imagine the Lord being with you in that place? Truly scary, but he's with you. 
you need to exercise some boundaries with parents. Scary stuff, especially for Asian people, right? Scary stuff. Boundaries? What the heck are boundaries, right? But if that is something that you really need to be healthy in your life, can you imagine the Lord walking with you in that scary place? Even as you kind of face the wrath of your parents, could you imagine the Lord walking with you in that? Squeezing your hand. And the images don't stop there. The part about the the part about um, the Lord preparing a table before you in the presence of your enemies, it's a really weird image. But I'll make it even weirder, okay? Show this next slide, please. Yeah. That's right. Jesus loves Korean food. <laughs> but, you know... Um, I just want to make this image as weird as possible, right? Like a real scary environment and enemies all around. You're frightened. And Jesus is like, dude, what took you so long? I got some chadarbeki here. I got some samgyeopsal here. I got some pork belly, you know, extra kimchi, you know. Have a seat. Let's eat. It's like, What? What are you talking about? But the Lord's mentality is so different than ours. Like, it's like our mentality is there's enemies and there's fear and scary things, and I got to do all these things to be right before God, and let me take care of this first, and then I'll go and, you know, meet God. But his mentality is no, 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 no. I'll go before you, I'll wait for you. <laughs> in those scary places, you come on in, have a seat, we'll have some meat, okay? And I'll walk with you, I'll hold your hand, and we'll get through that scary stuff together. And so I hope that I can impart on you this, this sense of the overwhelming love of God as you work on your sin, right? Not necessarily despite your sin, although that's somewhat true, but also, that as you're working on your sin, he's so enamored with you and wants to spend time with you. He wants to guide you. He wants to hold your hand as you're doing it. And I pray that you can have that mentality you know, today and have a lasting image of whether it's the table, whether it's walking you hand in hand, whether it's you know, uh, any of the images that you may have uh, thought of today, I want you to have that lasting image because that is the way that we actually start to you know, uh, address our sin in a way that lasts, not just for a short while, but on into the stages of growth. So um, let me just pray real quick for us. Um, God, thank you so much for your word and for your companionship, for your grace towards us. Thank you that we don't have to earn our salvation because we can't anyway. And just thank you, God, that you meet us in these scary places and that you want us to work on our sin and that you are the one who will help us work on our sin. Help us to not be afraid. And help us to trust in you in this process. And we pray all this in Jesus' name.
Thanks so much for joining us today. We're really grateful that you'd spend time listening to the sermon series. And we also wanted to point you to a few other resources. My wife and I wrote a children's book collection helping kids bridge their faith with God's calling in their life as a businessman, as a doctor or nurse, and as a creative. Secondly, we wrote an adulting journal, which helps young adults think through this transition into adulthood, whether it's transitions in friendship, family, faith, or calling. And lastly, I want to point to a podcast that myself and another church member, Roy Kim, who's a therapist, co-host together. It's called The Same Boat. We talk about relationships. We just finished um, a series on dating. We think back to an English ministry church, and we just tackle all kinds of topics that are relevant to our life. I hope that uh, those resources enrich your life as well. And lastly, if you're looking to partner with us on our website, we have a give section. You could give to our general fund and continue to serve our church through um, through partnering with us financially. But if you scroll down, we have quite a few local missionaries that have called Renew Home. If you read their bio, there's also a section to give to each one of our local missionaries. We hope that all of them would be fully funded going into this year. God bless you. Thanks so much for being with us and uh, hope to hear, hope to uh, have you join us again.